Video Vortex Podcast respectfully acknowledges that we are recording on the lands of the Bunurong, Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and we acknowledge and remind people that sovereignty was never ceded. What is it that we're watching? Distinguished guests, welcome to Video Vortex. Yes, it's just down there, you can't miss it. Welcome to another Video Vortex podcast, except this one isn't quite like the others. I, Bucks, aka Ben, the other Ben, I'm flying solo today as I interview two Australian filmmakers of a power couple you might say on their film The Marshes. We're trying something a little bit different at the moment. We're looking to move our regular episodes to a fortnightly schedule. This will give us a bit more time to dig into some research and bring out some more interesting points. In the meantime we won't leave you hanging. We'll be talking to a variety of interesting folks People who work in cinema, people who write about cinema, people with an interest in cinema, people with interests entirely different who have interesting things to say about cinema. Who knows? We'll go wherever the audience and the guests take us, maybe? Don't hold us to that. Starting this week, we will have interview slots fortnightly and regular episodes the alternating week. As a heads up, we will be releasing an episode on documentary next week, which was a very interesting discussion. We'll be bringing some spooky season stuff soon. In the meantime, for our first interview slot, we are going full spooky season with our guests Christine Tan and Roger Stone, the producer and the director and writer of The Marshes. The Marshes is a 2018 horror film. The synopsis, as stated on themarshesmovie.com, states that in the middle of nowhere is a labyrinthine marshland, teetering on the verge of extinction. Committed to saving it is Dr. Priya Anand, using diligence and reason to fight the forces of ignorance that threaten its existence. With rival Ben and assistant Will helping her, Priya is certain she is in control, but her fears threaten to overwhelm her. Tensions mount, and control becomes elusive. Finally, fear becomes manifest in the form of a horrifying evil. They must abandon science and focus on survival. It saw a limited theatrical release in Australia, which was how Roger and I met when I hosted a Q&A for it. It then, unfortunately, went as many Australian films do and disappeared for a little while. However, in a moment of historical significance to Australian genre cinema history, not only did Shudder finally arrive in Australia, the online streaming service produced by AMC, but they had also picked up international rights for the Marshals. So, a very intriguing, creepy and unusual horror film that we almost didn't get a chance to see set in a very, very remote location, which we will talk about more soon. It features a particularly Australian monster, the Swagman, who has unusual properties. Like many Australian horror films, Roger and Christine very much utilising landscape to 
create a sense of not only dislocation and fear, but I guess isn't that blurb labyrinthine marshland is a place you can become lost in and shooting it by daylight, such a landscape actually becomes more frightening so the darkness hides much of it. So if you like your horror films a bit day-bound and a bit different, it's definitely a bit of slow burn, as they say. Not exactly what every horror fan is out. You, know, you need to go into this one ready for something a little bit different. I don't know if you've heard that before, but this one is that. I certainly hope that Roger and Christine will have uh, more opportunities in the future because this is a good little horror film. For first-time feature filmmakers setting themselves some terrible obstacles to get over. That's a remarkable little achievement, and I will happily revisit it again. Anyway, I've definitely rambled on too much, just wanted to set up a little bit. The interviews, uh, I'm still adjusting to being an interviewing person, so they're pretty ramshackle and rambly. Wow, what? You say? Not at all like how we record normally. I check to make sure the microphone's on. Um, <laughs> now, Christine and Roger sent me through a little edition that woke up the next morning, of course, and thought of a thousand things they wanted to say. So keep listening at the end, and there'll be a little add-on that they sent with a few more details on things. Enjoy. Be sure to check out The Marshes on Shudder. Everyone, remember, every day is Halloween, but this time of year especially so. You have a wonderful time, get spooky, and enjoy. This podcast is kind of, it's not just Q&A kind of stuff. Like, I'm curious about what people are thinking along the same kind of lines when we're thinking about film and talking about it, the kind of random things that come into the process. And, yeah, I'm certainly curious about you two, about what the how you think about film like uh, i you know we could definitely start with a kind of simple q and a question which is i'll pull out one of the ones that i asked you hang on let me scroll through my card system i know like uh, roger you come from a biology background but christine i don't really know your background i it's come a, from a, a question yeah i come from an advertising background no no um, go back further oh, from back further yeah ask, ask I, her what her first job out of like if you want a quintessential like if you were to write uh you know a, a history of a of a filmmaker and you want it to be as like it's so stereotypical that you almost wouldn't think of it. It's like it's almost cheesy. I worked at Village Cinemas as um, yeah, making chop tops and you know I being an it. usher. Which Village Cinema? <laughs> yeah, back in the day, and um, oh, on George Street in Sydney. I worked there when I was sixteen. But first of all, I worked there. I got work experience. You know, in year ten, you go and do work experience. So I did work experience there for a week and then they offered me a job after that. So then I started working there and loved it because you get free movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I worked at Cinema Nova here in Melbourne for about four or five years and then at the Astor. And so, yeah, I, I, I remember getting work experience people and being like, welcome to the bins, the exciting world of cinema. <laughs> 
Yeah, but yeah, the, the free choc. I, I was to say when you started somewhere like Nova, we got every broken choc top you could eat. Yes. Yeah. So the the, the knock off choc top is a very real thing at Nova. You do it for about three months, for two months for every shift, and then you realize I am going to die. <laughs> totally. But it's like I remember they had like a quota of how many choc tops you should make in from a tub. Yeah. You know, it's like you can't go. You can't go. Less than that because it doesn't meet their margins. <laughs> well, see, uh, yeah, Palace, they make – Palace and Nova both make their own chop tops. So the Palace, it was kind of everybody chips in, but Nova has its own dedicated uh, team of oh, chop toppers. Wow. They have one guy who would who made all these um, for the Miyazaki season would do these Totoro chop tops that would oh, take, gosh. like, an hour each wow. to make one wow. with layers and everything. He's like – Instagrammed all over the world, so well and truly worth it. But yeah, the the chopped up in there is next level. <laughs> it's so funny because I was one time we were being silly and we decided to put like lollies in there, <laughs> so yeah. like, like random snakes. And we briefly touched on in our fourth episode, we're doing documentary. Yeah, we talked a bit about advertising in relation to cinema and documentaries. So it's, mm. it's you've definitely got some nice connected fields there. Yeah, it's but I I landed my job as a um, in advertising just by pure coincidence too. So it was kind of I went to at the back then it was the CES, which is the job employment place that you go and mm-hmm. you, so it was probably the Commonwealth Employment Service yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. What, yeah, and um, there was just a advertisement saying oh you know we need a receptionist production assistant at this company and yeah and then I got that job so it was sort of I never thought I'd actually be working in the industry you know I, I, I like how it's kind of like not just, it fe- like looking back it seems strategic and yeah. then, but then you're like no I just randomly did this and yeah. then I did this other thing and then so I then, ended up making yeah. so then I left I left village <laughs> to to do this job so yeah, it would have been – I tell Roger, like, it's kind of interesting, the path, because if I didn't get that job, whether I'd stay in and do distribution, you know, mm-hmm. within the cinema because, you know, you get into the box office and then, you know, you work yourself up. But, yeah, yeah. it's kind of an interesting path that you end up taking. And, um, yeah, it was good. It was good. Excellent. Mm. So for our audience who doesn't know, Roger, you, you were doing – Biology? What aspect of biology? I can't sure, remember. Sure. Look, it, I did a. To be a hundred percent correct, it was biology, parenthesis environmental science. So it, it, I, I, I roll, rolled, um, rolled up to uni thinking, yep, I'll be an enviro, um, mm-hmm. and that was in oh God back in the mid to late nineties now, which is a long time ago, and I got. You know, I, I'd, I grew up on a farm, so I loved I loved biology, I loved ecology, I loved all of that stuff. Um, and, I mean, to cut a very long story short, I kind of went through all of that. Like, I still retain that love, but I also um, had a lot of romantic notions um, knocked out of me during the process of working as an environmental scientist and just <laughs> seeing places that you love destroyed because you're the only person who kind of cares about them to be in a community where that is not important to anybody else um, was a real sort of, yeah, it was a real shock to my romantic ideals. That's for sure. Um, But, you know, it was kind of, 
I guess it's important to go through those shocks um, as you, uh, you know, as you get older. But that sort of put me on a bit of a, I, I reached crossroads and I was like, oh, I, it would be interesting to see some of the world and I wonder what else I would be able to do. And it was, that was like a couple of year process. And then returning to Australia and going, ah, oh, actually, yeah, I might try filmmaking. Because I mean, where I grew up from, you were a, a farmer or something in the trades. Like it just wasn't, I, I didn't know, I didn't even know, I didn't know a writer, I didn't know a painter, I knew no one <laughs> in the arts. I knew one, one neighbor's um, daughter who um, worked occasionally as a photographer. That's like, that's the extent of my mm. exposure to the arts where I grew up. So it was, you know, for me, this is actually kind of, you know, a very weird left field sort of occupation. Mm. Whereabouts was it that you grew up? I grew up in the wheat belt of Western Australia. So mm-hmm. that is, uh, it was a town of about a thousand people. So it gets isolated really quickly over there. You know, basically the entire population of of Western Australia is in Perth. And I mean, mm. it's just, you can talk about it and it, I guess it seems sort of abstract, but you, to try and wrap your head around how big of a place that is and how few people there are is... Yeah, it's sort of difficult without actually driving across it and going, oh, my God, there's nobody here. So, you know, we were like three hours from Perth and it's it's isolated straight away. You know, there's yeah. not it, – it's a, it's a town every 30 to 45 minutes and each of those towns is no bigger than 800 people. You know, there's, there's like 7,000 people, 400 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, 40 people – 2,000 people, and then basically no one until you get to Kalgoorlie, which is filled with miners, you know, so it's a very, <laughs> it, and it's interesting because it's a place that's it's quintessentially Australian, but nobody's ever seen and nobody's ever been to. And so that idea was really a pertinent idea for the marshes. That was an idea that has sort of, I guess, been instilled in me from my own um my own experience um, living and growing up in a really, you know, remote um, place is that everybody kind of has an idea about what this place we live in is um, and they think they know the place they come from, but we, we really don't. We don't know it at all. Like Australia is just made up of all of these places that nobody has ever seen and nobody understands. And Obviously, uh, as an in, as an environmental scientist, that is a really problematic situation to have. I think there's there's a lot of issues that we confront now that really aren't about technology or a, a um, you know a, a a better way of doing things. It's simply about a lack of care, and that lack of care is only it's not that people are bad people. It's just that they have no familiarity with these with these places they just don't they're just unknown landscapes yeah i could definitely that makes a lot of sense with the film because i'm sure most people would go oh that seems like an interesting place to shoot whereas you're just kind of like yeah that's just you know out the back it's fine i'm used to this we'll go out and do it in the middle of nowhere and it'll be super <laughs> but yeah how far did you have to travel to get to the location in the marshes it was quite a distance from what i remember yeah so it's two day it took us 
well, it took us several days to get there because we were shooting. I mean, it's one very, very, very long day or, or two days. So it's out near Lightning mm. Ridge. It's far western New South Wales. And again, I mean, that was – so there was a reason to choose uh, – let me backtrack for a second and say this is our first film. So if anybody out there is watching it, I'm not – I'm not about to make excuses for it, but I will say as an independent film, it was heavily laden with ideas and intentions. Um, It's a great looking film and I'm really proud of all of the work that everybody um, put into it. We had great technicians, great actors. It was, you know, I think it works in and of itself, but there are also, it's all um, beset with compromises and, and in some cases, the weight of the ideas, you know, there was it was a learning process for us now looking back mm. on it. And it's still a discussion we have. It's like, okay, so there are some things that we would definitely change, but some of that is stuff you don't know. Others is stuff that we should have taken out that we just put too many ideas in. And the other is, is the tyranny of um, resources. You know, mm. we were so far out and it took so long it took so much of our day to get into those amazing sites that um, something has to give, mm. and and so there are for us. It's a it's still a, a topic of conversation about that that pull between those compromises, and and so then to tie it into what's happening in this moment in film now from a technological point of view, um, we mentioned before about Unreal Engine is that we now look at this and we're like. Wow. Okay. So as though we have all of these ideas that are about those locations, about that, those unseen landscapes and about these particular ideas we wanted to explore. And oddly enough, we would do the marshes too, for example. Um, virtual production. In, in, virtually. Could do a couple of days of shooting where you're capturing the locations right. and then stitch it together using the same kind of techniques as we we've discussed previously on the podcast with the Mandalorian creating these virtual spaces within a um, studio setting. That's right, it, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I'm like I'm, we spent like you know because we had to travel equipment, crew, cast in one ATV vehicle. It was <laughs> you know that you, that ate up so much of our time at the start of the day and at the end of the day. So, so, we, were, so yeah. we were shooting, nobody worked for free. We were paying, it was very important to us. We've been, we didn't want to ask those sorts of favours. It was enough that everybody was out there. So we shot strictly 10-hour days. Um, and, you know, there may be some people in there who are, you know, who would shake their head and say, well, that's your first, you know, you should have taken more advantage of the crew, but we did not want to, it was already arduous enough. Um, yeah, so we it was were, hard. We yeah. wanted to look after people. Mm. So we shot strictly 10-hour days, which meant that we had, yeah, we were losing an hour to an hour and a half each, each, side. each side, you know, getting in and out of the location. So that was worth it, but then there were there are trade-offs, especially, mm. you know, we had a 21-day shoot um, to to try and achieve everything. Yeah, there are, there are traders. So for us to look at, um, yeah, going out, it, I mean, in some ways you can get to more amazing locations. You can capture, you know, with a, with the, the, that capture technology, you know, mm. you can, there are places we would like to have shot that we just, it was just either. Physically, you just we were logistically. Like, oh, we're yeah. not going to get a crew in there. Yeah. Like even the water stuff was big enough, you know, just 
being in waiters. That was all handheld, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, because I was looking at that and there's some beautiful panning shots that look like they could almost be on rails, but I was like, yeah, no, that's the you're clearly standing in water there. <laughs> there's, um, Geo did a really good job, but, I mean, he goes the extra mile, and, I mean, th- there was a point at the end we're all really run down. Mm. I remember he had this um massive ulcer on his... <laughs> On his tongue, like his mouth was oh, that's basically his mouth. an ulcer. Oh. And I was like, dude, like, do you just, we'll, do you want to go to the doctor? Like, I, I can't, like, you were in a lot of pain. And he's just like, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm just, and it's like he's got a mouthful of cotton wool. And I mean, the guy just, um, just kept, he just kept going. Just kept going. You know, yeah. he was so, he was all in. He was so yeah. committed. And we had a lot of people like that. So, I mean, I have, Although it was hard, I have such um, warm memories of that. And, of course, Christine was six months pregnant. So um, at about the time we started cutting it, we had our little boy. Yeah. So, you know, there's. It, it seems weird to talk about a horror film and to be sort of so, I don't know, nostalgic about it in some <laughs> ways. But, I mean, for us, there's a lot of interesting things happening in that time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, it's quite often that you hear that. That I know the reading interviews with the actors who worked on Pasolini's Salo. Mm-hmm. They said it was a great time. You know, all the shit was chocolate, and they enjoyed doing it. <laughs> <laughs> quite often, the, the the weirdest, nastiest films were often the ones that people end up having the most fun on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think we had, um, yeah, we had, we had, we had a really good time. It was hard, but it was good. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't. There was a familial feel on set, and at the end of the day, um, people we, we knew that we, we were kind of getting it right when at the end of the day people were still hanging out and having a beer together and talking. They weren't all just <laughs> get going back to their dongers and, you know, just avoiding everybody. The, you know, they would hang out around. We had this just this one farmhouse's unit base and then these, well, you might want to talk about the accommodation. Yeah, so I, there was like nothing. It was basically just a farmhouse that we... In the middle of a uh, paddock. Yep. And so we brought in mining dongers for the crew with and had to ship in the water and generators for the electricity. Um, so because, you know, there was only a few rooms in the farmhouse. So, you know, Rod and I stayed in there and um, the, the, just a couple more people. The, and, the dongers was better accommodation, let me just say. Like They had know, their own bathroom. They had, like, their own, they had en suites yeah. and... Do you want to explain what a donger is for any international audience yeah. that are going? Yeah, what? Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, sorry. A donger is mobile is a mobile um, mi- mining accommodation. So what you would get in a remote mine site or logging camp, mm-hmm. it's just this self-contained package of rooms mm-hmm. with a massive gen set and water treatment unit attached to it as well. I mean, it's a it's pretty. Pretty awe-inspiring set, thing to see yeah. these massive trucks bring in these, um, bring in this setup, and they just basically create this village straight away. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was that was interesting. But it, to to circle back to the specificity of the location, it ticked a few boxes for mm. us. It was an unseen. It was recognisably Australian, and yet completely an unseen and therefore unknown environment. And so we were kind of hoping that if you could have an audience seeing a place that was recognisably Australian but not one um, that they knew, 
um, that there would be a dissonance between um, their own perception of of the place that they knew. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's an extremely. I realise now that's an extremely hopeful thing as a filmmaker to hope that the audience is going to get from something that you're not explicitly pointing out. And the other thing was that it, it was, it is also the center of the water resource debate in Australia. You know, that is the epicenter mm. of this massive political environmental clusterfuck that has had literally billions and billions and billions of dollars spent on it. And arguably uh, is, you know, has not been particularly well managed. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of angry feelings out there about it. So the, the situation there was really something that we felt was it lent specificity to our story and therefore hopefully made it kind of interesting. But at the same time, it, we hope there was a universality to that. There was things that you could, um, that we were saying or feeling and trying to put those feelings into the film that would resonate with people thinking about other environmental issues like climate change. You know, it's not all of the stuff that happens in that microcosm really aren't, aren't that different to what's happening in the broader world. Mm. So we kind of discussed that a lot in trying to make the film and develop the film. Mm, exactly. Yeah, watching it again this week, it's like fortunately for you unfortunately for the world it still feels very relevant <laughs> those elements in there there's some interesting things in there that are beyond that to tie it into the horror history of horror general weirdness that a lot of times when you read up on creepy weird places that have a lot of unusual phenomena they're often tied to water uh, it's a very strong connective tissue but it also reminds me of deliverance <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I just, I love Deliverance so much. I just, I really... That connection between that, the the city versus country divide yeah. and how it really develops as a genre out of Deliverance, which is built around the damming of this area. Yeah, totally. And mm. that, I, I, you know, I think a lot of people, even though they're quite explicit, you know, those characters are saying in there, man, we've got to run this river. This is our last chance. You know, they're damming it. I think... I'm I'm not sure how much that was even, you know, I mean, it's testament to the quality of that movie. Um, perhaps that, that message was almost lost in the awesomeness of that mm. story. You know, I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I hope that that is something that people got at the time. But, I mean, it, it does hit me strongly every time I watch it because I kind of, you know, I know about that. It wasn't, it wasn't even a thing they made up. They, I believe they filmed in a place that was literally being um, dammed, yeah. being flooded. Yeah, I believe you're right from what I remember, yeah. John Borman has that strange ethereal whatever the fuck John Borman is on thing. <laughs> when you go into like his Zardoz and his Stranger films and you come back to Deliverance, you're like, oh, no, it's all, it's all in it's Deliverance. All in <laughs> it's just subsumed a little bit more. That was one thing I liked about the marshes. I think there's a lot of those kind of elements in there. And they are, you know, excuse the pun, but they are floating just beneath the surface. Uh, but they, they cohese very well. And, I, yeah, watching it today, uh, uh, early today again, it was it, it holds together really nicely. I know I can hear you getting a bit defensive there and talking about some of the 
the elements and I've how read, it I've was... read too many reviews. Never, yeah, never read reviews. I, don't know, but I saw some of the reviews today. I was like, ah, oh, you guys suck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. no, I, I think it's, I think when you're dealing with horror, it is a bit mm. difficult because people come in with a lot of preconceptions. Yes. Especially if it is like, it has, it's not, I don't, would not assume I would exactly call it a slasher film. No. It has those elements to it and it would, you could put it in there, but it's not 100% that, that there's that kind of expectation of a certain amount of whatever gratuitousness or, or nastiness. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, we really wanted to use the tropes to take people, you know, to, to sort of usher them in and then kind of go in a different direction. You know, we really wanted to use this as a vehicle, as a tool to do and say different things. I think probably from... Uh, from a purely, uh, I'm very, like I said, I'm very happy with the work that everybody did on the film. Like it, it's, it, you know, they, I don't mean, can I just mention for a second the sound design? Like you, you may not know this, but there's this recurring sound design. So I gave the guys a direction that I just wanted to use the calls of birds that occur in that area. So they, mm. and they were really good about that. And I provided them with some that I had found. I was like, yep, these, you know, these fit with these particular parts. I made that bit easy for them. But then one of the guys went off and got, you know, got a, a list of what would be out there and then went and recorded um, as many of those birds as he could. And one of the great sounds in that is actually a manipulated raven call like a, a detuned crow call if you will that is worked into the soundscape of of the film and i mean it's it's so awesome but in how does that tie to the visual aspect so that's a really trippy and weird kind of a a sound which fits the ethos that we had when making the film you know all of the thought that we put into how that's going to work which is reflected also in the grade and other elements of the film but we, I, I'd really wanted something that was strongly um, uh, hallucinogenic, almost a really strong dreamlike quality, and I think that was just one. And so it is there in parts, but that that all pervading dreamy aspect was something that was just slightly out of reach for us with i think the resources that we had available yeah and so if i think about one thing in particular that from a and i'm not talking about performance or anything or writing or anything like that i'm talking about just the the visual look i think that would have um steered the audience's um perception of other elements in the story more strongly and that and and so that's nobody's fault and it's not necessarily a um a negative but just in terms of okay so what was that vision particularly what was the particular element that i think i wanted to really tie mm. it together and it was that dreamlike mm. nature of it conversely you go into that landscape and particularly that shot where priya is framed like a um like a um is it the heidelberg school of painting you know the the one out of melbourne where they, mm. they always had the they had the massive nature and the small figure at the bottom so we had her framed like that when she's doing her sampling on her own and particularly on a big screen that's just the just the colors and that tableau is you know is 
just a um it's a real head fuck like it's such an amazing shot and location you know it, it is in and of itself that landscape is quite hallucinogenic i can't remember i think when i first because the only time the only time i'd watched it all the way through i think was on a screener and i probably watched it on my laptop unfortunately and then i would have seen a bit of it at the q a on the screen but then today watching it on my giant 4k tv on shutter it's like this looks really good. <laughs> it's really like the marshes and the trees and the nature and the way that everyone shot, like it's really beautifully composed. Um, it doesn't look rough at all. It doesn't look like anybody's first time feature film. And as I said, especially given the uh, <laughs> brutality of some of the wilderness, it's really good. There's some remarkable shots in there that it, I rarely see uh in in any international horror films let alone australian genre cinema oh, thank you it's um yeah it's so nice to be appreciated <laughs> but that's what, what it was be a cheer squad here yeah. Yeah. i mean you but- know, that's why we went out there because it was just amazing amazing landscape and you just don't mm. like i'd never been like you know i'd oh, never experienced yeah. that and it was just amazing and i'd love just being out there and, you know, not having much phone reception or just being <laughs> within that that landscape was just incredible. It, so. it, it's because I'd been working out there pre, mm. prior to this. That's how I knew I was, um, even though I was on the, the filmmaking bent, I still wanted to sort of keep my tools sharp, I guess you'd say. So I would go out and um, I had a postgrad researcher friend who um, was doing work out there for I think UNSW at the time and so he needed research assistance and I was like I'm an unemployed filmmaker I can do that um so (laughs) I went out there with him and I and that was over the actually over the end of the Mm. millennium drought Mm. um so I, I saw this place over a really interesting and 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 soul crushing period, you know, we were talking that we were going and doing fish research, and um, it, it was this desolate, post apocalyptic landscape. Like it's um, it was dreadful, and there were just a few points in the landscape that still had water in them, and and everyone was hurting. And then when the when the the um, drought broke or it broke in parts and it came through and the transformation that was really amazing to see as well and so I'd been coming back and Mm. talking to Christina saying this place is really interesting and this is a really cinematic landscape and I'm you know obviously I talk a lot and (laughs) she was like yeah 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 fine and this we'd been going out there for a few years Mm. and I was like you should come out like there's a chance for you know you to, to get out there. Do you want to come and have a look? And she's like, oh, yeah, I suppose. So yeah, that sounds interesting. Mm. And she came out, and there was one night where she just went, yeah, I get it. I mm. I, I I heard what you were saying before, but I did not understand until I came out here and I saw it, and now I get it. And that was the point at which we were saying all right, so if we're going to make a feature film, what about this idea and doing it out here? And mm. it was that dialogue, you know, I think, but I think that was sort of the moment. And so for me as a director, you know, I'm constantly bouncing. Christine's my first audience 
and I'm constantly bouncing ideas and what ifs and whatnots <laughs> off her and she's like, you know, now I just look, she doesn't even have to say anything. I'm like, she's either like, mm, or she's like, mm. <laughs> and, you know, she was like, yeah, I can see that. So when that moment when she was like, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Now I am, now I can see mm. what was in your head uh, because your words are shit and I don't understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, you don't, unless you're, yeah, it's, and it's such a different feeling being out there as well. It doesn't really capture it on screen or anything. It's just. Yeah, look, it's a unique place. Yeah. There, but having said that, there are certain spots that you go into in the film and it's as it's as close as you can ever get to getting some of the emotion yeah. of that place. It's um, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and f- but but then you know you have these feelings about that place mm. and how amazing it is, and it's just so utterly fraught. It's just on a knife's edge, mm. just the whole time. And so for us, if we could say with that place, here's this amazing and beautiful. Uh, landscape and and you as an Australian audience would say, yeah, that, that, that's Australia. But it, we were, again, as I was saying before, we were hoping that people would go, oh, yeah, but I don't actually recognise, I've never seen that before. Like I know that it's Australian mm. but I don't know it. So what does that say about my knowledge of the place that we, um, that we come from? Mm. Um, but like I said, there's, that's a lot to load up into <laughs> yeah. a film. There's a lot of, a lot of hope in there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I was wondering, how did you cope with all of this, Christy? Because you clearly had a lot to organise and set up and juggle Roger as well. <laughs> yeah. Fair call. Well, just, just being in the industry, like the, the logistical things weren't hard for me. It was like that was easy. That, that wasn't mm. the hard part at all. It was I enjoy the process and I enjoyed the – the creative process as well. So having all that experience organising everything was sort of, it was second nature. So I could focus on being creative, which was the the fun thing. So, Mm. you know, yeah, that was the easy part for me. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't hard at all. <laughs> Just despite the fact that she, as I said previously, she was six months pregnant and she, and we're out in this, um, out in this quite at times very unforgiving environment you know she's in waders in water up to a waist and she's <laughs> just you know just doing it I, I just I still have so much um respect for her um her physical and mental toughness I think that was um yeah it was pretty cool I think I just always forget forgot to sit down it's like you know you'd be like sit down just sit down <laughs> like oh <laughs> Yeah, oh. uh, but by far the hardest part of of the whole process is is marketing and distribution. Yeah, like without a, a doubt. Mm, I mean, yeah, definitely the back end. It's with, with the, the, and I'm, I think that's the same for a lot of filmmakers. Mm. I mean, that's the fun part mm. is is actually is putting it putting yeah. it together. And you know, I I had never done post production of that scale before in that film, and and I was apprehensive, and it turned to out to be a real joy. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I really, I love the post-production as well mm. and um, marketing and distribution, not so much. It's just this. <laughs> that's the, that's it's just the this, hard bit. Uh, this just total dark art. It's like, uh, 
it's a big problem these days where creatives are expected to be their own marketing people as well. It's like, mm. no, that's an entirely different part of the brain that just, no. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, you do learn. I mean, it's important to go through that though and then go, all right, so who do I need to work with <laughs> yeah. um, to, to do this, you know, the next time? And we did learn that. So that was, uh, you know, that was good. But it's um, it's a slog, yeah. When did you start really putting the film together in pre-production and when did you start shooting approximately? Mm. I'm not expecting exact dates. The 19th of October 2015 <laughs> we started shooting and we wrapped 21 oh. days later. Yeah, and so we, because we went out, we recceed. Remember we oh, recceed? We had pre-production, yeah. I mean the... the, the it was only like a month. No, we had. I think we had six weeks of pre in total. Yes, yeah. But we had... You were like, all right, we need a script. This idea and this small script that you have, we need something to shoot, and so you need to start. Uh, that was t- end of 2012 that started. So Christine was mm-hmm. like, all right, d- let's stop talking about it and you get on with it and I will start doing my part and we'll meet um, in the middle. So we, we did that, but then the actual post-production part was took about a year, didn't it? Maybe even a bit longer. It was it was really drawn out. Um, I think we had, we had we had some availability issues. Yeah. Um, and as an independent film, you don't. Yeah. So our edit our offline didn't start for like six months or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was later? really long, really long. So that was um, that that actually was hard. That was a very yeah. um, difficult process for us. That was a that was a long breach birth, if you will. But we had, you know, we had our, our child at that the start of the year, so it was kind of nice because Rog was there at that time as well before, you know, going straight into the film. So there yeah. was time. It did, just look, to it, spend. Did, it, it we're, there's a, there's silver linings for sure, but yeah. it was so it's the birth a, of the baby and birth of the film baby. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. when I pulled it up on Shutter, it said 2020, and I laughed. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it's just not a, a 2020 film. <laughs> no. It was 2015, so five year, coming up on five-year anniversary of the first yeah. day of shooting. The first day of Yeah, shooting. we really are. Yeah. I think what's interesting, for some people it can be hard to wrap your head around how much has changed in such a short space of time. But if you can think how we consumed film and tv and what film and tv we can we were consuming in 2015 and to now or to take it even bigger leap when we conceived this idea in Mm. 20 or started putting it together in 2013 we had a we did a marketing and distribution map Mm. and ways that we would get this out there you think about from then until you know, we were actually ready to get it into the market, how much that market had changed. Like it's mm. mind-boggling. Half of the platforms, <laughs> entities, if you will, that we were going to going to use to get that film out there no longer existed. Like it yeah. was just it's just such a radically different place over that, that yeah. time period. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an interesting time to be making films. Like it's just so much constant change. You had theatrical distribution through what was the name of that company? Oh, Athabasca. Athabasca. Oh yeah, that's Athabasca. Steve's, that's um, Steve, company. That's yeah. Steve's company, but it's. I think a lot of people don't 
if a lot of regular film lovers don't realise how complicated distribution is oh, and that theatrical doesn't mean that you're going to get a DVD or a movie or a TV, show, a TV screening or anything like that. Theatrical is just for theatres. Yeah. So you had that locked down and that led to a variety of Q&A screenings, which is how we met, but it didn't go much beyond that. I think as a filmmaker, so this is one of our constant conversations is like after that bruising experience, we, you you know, it sends you on a path of kind of drilling down into, okay, what the fuck do people want? And what do we need to do as filmmakers to be, to be visible? And so what sort of stories are we telling? And I guess, I guess it's a, a feeling of, of needing a certain amount of, um, what the fuckness around some of your concepts or just really nailing, I don't know, the watchability of it. Um, mm. we, you know, we see ourselves as pretty obviously firmly independent filmmakers. So if we want to survive, there needs to be, I don't know, needs to be next level, man. Um, yeah, there's, I guess just cutting, cutting through requires a, a really a strong distillation of ideas and um, something that can pull people's attention in. I don't mm. feel badly towards the audiences for what they watch and what they want to engage with because it's so all-encompassing the amount of um, stuff to watch. The they content, can pick and choose and yeah. the quality is so high, you know, especially with the stuff that's on TV at the moment. So then it, it, as a filmmaker, you're like, okay, so what if we start making – the minimum length film to still be a feature film. You know, what if we're making like 60 or 65 minute films and then instead of these massive long episodes of TV or multiple binges of TV, then there's a spot here for um, two, you know, 65 minute films that people would watch Mm -hmm. in, in one sitting or which then is interesting because actually, you know, they were kind of double headers or in a way what Tarantino was after with his um, um, grindhouse Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. kind of idea. I don't know. It's just kind of these questions and these discussions that we have are pushing around the form and you know the content sometimes people think that it's just that you know you you pick these ideas that just have meaning to you and of course you do but there's so much discussion about trying to work out what an audience wants Mm -mm. to see and where we can meet in the middle it's not us kind of hoping to foist a vision upon an unsuspecting audience oh it's it's definitely it's a bit yeah you're you're kind of throwing an egg up into the air and trying to <laughs> shoot it with a spoon or something. I don't know. It's, it's, there's so many factors that go into time, zeitgeist, what's happening in the world, what's here. And it's interesting you bring up the, the time because I, I quite often, I, I love a big slab of three-hour film, but I also, when I see a film's like 80 minutes or something, I'm like, yes, because I work nights and stare at a screen all the time (laughs) that is us we're like oh should we watch should we watch this this marquee film chris is like we've got to watch this i'm like no what we have to watch is this film that is 80 minutes (laughs) biggest horror film review wise this year has been host which is what like 65 minutes or something the length of a zoom call 
where I definitely wanted to ask you about that the things like Shudder are opening up a lot of opportunities where you go like, okay, well, you don't need to be the theatrical tyranny of 90 minutes or whatever. There's that flexibility to be like, oh, we've got this thing and we'll just put it out there. Mm. How did you end up getting in touch with Shudder? Was that you personally or was that... Um, we had a sales a, agent yeah. who, who put us in touch with them and they were... It, it was a, it was a good experience for us. They were really supportive and lovely. It, I was going to say it was a slightly kind of bureaucratic process, and I mean that to try and paint a picture to people that Shutter AMC or AMC and Shutter is the horror streaming arm of AMC is a massive fucking company, and it just takes time for stuff to kind of back and forth and and go through that process. So once they were like, yeah, we're interested in this, it wasn't kind of hard. Or difficult, it was just kind of a, it's a big ship to turn for everything to kind of, yeah, we'll get, that's going to come and then we'll Mm. sign that and we'll go through this. And then there's the other thing that made it quite lengthy in terms of having it available on that platform in Australia and New Zealand was the fact that actually when we made that sale, even though we sold that territory at the same time, Australia and New Zealand, they hadn't launched here yet, and it was actually a, a while before they did. Mm, they did was, launch, yeah. so it, that had been slated for them for quite a while, and it just, for whatever reason, um, it, it was you know it was a while before that happened. Yeah, because that was that was quite a I must say pleasant surprise when we got Shutter, and I think the only two Australian films on it were the old Next of Kin film and You Two with the Marshes. So it's like, oh, well, you, I think I think you might have been the first Australian film to sell to Shudder. That's and cool. I didn't know that. So mm-hmm. I, like, that it is brand new, that hasn't, you know, been released anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, and definitely, as I said, when it arrived in Australia, it was... The, the 80s film Next of Kin and The Marshals. So you've yeah, at least got that feather in your cap for history. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, if, um, I think that makes a – that uh, streaming platform also makes a lot of sense for um, for horror films and horror aficionados. It's uh, And, again, for us, that's that discussion around, okay, so what size and shape – is this film, you know, is a film that we would make? What is the story? And then uh, there's also the other part of that is, okay, so how much are you, you going to be able to sell it for and how much are you are going to make it for? Like just very pedestrian-sounding, normal, mm. small business considerations. Sorry, I'm not sure I was tying that to Shudder somehow, but I was... No, that's okay. Yeah, it, it is... Talking is, about the form know, cinema, function. it's that back and forth constantly between the, the economics of it and the artistic yes. aspect of it. Yeah. And it, is, and it is a very difficult juggle. And you have to think about that. You know, unless you, you know, have all the money in the world, you know, you do. <laughs> you it, it, I think the experience that we we got from the marshes was having to think like this a lot more than what we did at the marshes because you know the marshes was our first film so we're, you know it's exciting and it was all mm. in creative and um of course we thought about you know the audience and everything but now i think for future films we are more aware of having to think on the back end Christian <laughs> saying we've become far more mercenary. I know. <laughs> Roger, give me an idea, yeah. and I'm like, no. No. I was like, no one's going to watch it. What no. about this? <laughs> no. What is it? We talked about it on one of the podcast episodes that uh, it has been a problem for a lot of uh, cinemas that 
you have first time filmmakers who then never get an opportunity to make a second film and that's a knowledge drain. Yes. You two have an incredible wealth of knowledge between the two of you now, just from probably more than a lot of first-time filmmakers because you set yourself so many bloody hard tasks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we, there's not a day that goes by where we're not like, okay, so the next one, it's happening in a house in a city. Lounge room. Every, everybody just rocks up. Yeah. We don't feed them, you know, they, they, they eat their breakfast before they come. We feed them lunch. And they, and they go, go home. home. We're not tucking them into bed. We're not giving them dinner. There's um, there's no kumbayas around the campfire. Well, I have to say the kumbayas around the campfire were awesome. We yeah. had uh, we had a lot of fun, but but yeah, it's like just it's just a drama set in a room, and uh, that's it. See the the film that I helped a friend make, Trench. That was what that was the first film that we did it was very simple just in melbourne <laughs> yeah. you know you comedy were, noir you were smart, kind of thing. smart. You were very smart. Yeah. look i i visualize independent cinema as a i, I visualize it as a graph with a, a steep curve and then it sort of flat lines and i i think of that as the um line of compromise as the size of compromise so at the at the very lowest budget you know, you've got basically a verti- you're on the vertical part of that curve, which is it's all compromise. And the compromises get, you know, less and less as the budget goes up. And there's a point at which the line, you're still making compromises, but the size of those compromises is really a lot smaller. You know, they're not, yeah, it's, it's the level of compromise is proportionate to the budget. So I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying that Tarantino doesn't have it tough. He does, you know, he has to make hard decisions, <laughs> but they're not hard decisions that, you know, drastically affect the narrative or um, mm. you know, other Anyway, sorry. That's a interesting aside. <laughs> There's always when you're the creator, you look at that thing and you see every dent, you see every chip, you see every missing piece. Yeah. And People who aren't the creator go like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, did you get to a chance to watch Blood Quantum? No, not yet. You'll like Blood Quantum. It's got a very strong environmental theme to its anti-colonial zombiness. The director of that is was doing a running, a, a tweeting, a commentary a couple of days ago. And every other tweet was like, oh, we had no budget for this. We had no time for that. We uh... didn't get to do this. We had to fudge this. We faked that. This is how we fudged that because it was meant to be this. And I'm looking at it like, couldn't tell. It looks amazing. Like, you can tell it's low budget because there's no close-ups. And I'm like, I loved it because of all the wide shots. (laughs) (laughs) What you were saying before, that that the hallucinogenic aspect, it may not go full hallucinogenic, but I think there's a strong sense of destabilization, which still ties in quite strongly with the environmental and also, you know, colonial aspect of how much... Australia has been destabilised since the arrival of the swag men. Mm-hmm. So I think, that, yeah, there's, there's, you, you don't be too hard on yourself. You've got, you got something strong there. It's in there. It's certainly in there. Just hearing you say that, I'm like, oh, he actually he really did watch it. <laughs> <laughs> he really did watch it twice now. <laughs> he watched it, yeah. <laughs> um, Christine, what are, are you a horror fan or more just? I do like horror. I just can't watch it at night. 
<laughs> and that's that's the main time of the day now as parents and and people with jobs that um that we have yeah. to watch so it's funny because i know it's all fake you know i do know mm. that but i still you know something come and i'm like is it scary is it a horror and which is like no and it's like, okay okay we can watch that <laughs> but we um yeah, we waded through quite a bit of stuff yes. for um in preparation for this and that was I mean that's so much fun that sort of research is is so great mm. and being able to take things apart and 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 also seeing things that you hadn't seen before like to to go back to deliverance there's this you know the scene after the um after the rape after the mm. um squeal like a pig and the he's um he's just shot the guy and he's, he's dead in the tree. You know how he had, to, had mm. to hold that position for that whole long take? Like the camera is basically locked off. And what's awesome is that they do something with the blocking in that film that they used to do pretty commonly back in the day, but you, you really don't see very often. I mean, shots aren't that long anymore unless it's, you know, 1917 or or something like that but generally the shots aren't that long and rather than move the camera they move the actors in the frame which is you know a mm. classic bit of oh you would know that if you had studied film that that is something that you do but actually to see it and to see how well they did it and how effective and how they for me it's just a very perfect perfect scene it's a very exciting scene and there's basically no camera movement in it mm. um and that is why did i start talking about that i'm sorry just talking about doing your research. Doing your research. So, yeah, to see that and then to go back over and over and over that again and go, oh, wow, that's something that we don't really do anymore and why don't we do it? Why wouldn't you? And I didn't really get to do that in the marshes, but that has definitely put an idea in mm. my head. I'm like, that's an old idea that's new. Like that is um, – and that's something that the actors all respond to and really enjoy. I mean, because for them that is really harkens back to the start of acting, which was on the stage where you do that all the time. You create interest by uh, through blocking. Mm. There's so many styles and options available and yet we really aren't exploring a huge amount of them in most films. And every now and then you get a film that does and people are like, wow, that looks so alive and new. And you're like, yeah, it's, it's, they were doing that a lot 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. You just forgot. That's right. <laughs> we, um, but that's, that's like VP though, like the virtual pr production, how, you know, harks back yeah. to, you know, projection oh, on yeah. old cinema. And it's been around yeah, like for re so long. Yeah, projection and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty... It's pretty interesting hearing these wizened old gaffers and DOPs going, oh, we did that, you know, back, we were doing that on, you know, whatever it was back in the day. And you're like, you you were? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. projection screens at the back yeah. of the cars and things yes, like that. exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it looks great and sometimes you're just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it always looks great no matter what. <laughs> Part of my problem sometimes with recommending films to people is I watch so much demented strange put together stuff that i'm like that ah, it's fine even if it's not in focus it's fine <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite films in the last couple of years is a, a punk horror film shot on video in florida in the 80s <gasps> called twisted issues and it literally has lighting with a torch like you can tell they're just holding a torch on a dude while they're filming it and it's it, it's it's a punk horror film it's like the goes for it it's like we know don't worry about it and it's beautiful i'm like 
I wish that more people could just mm. embrace that and people would accept it. It's like, yes. don't forget about it. It's about what's happening. It's about the ideas. Mm. Just go with it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. I think that's interesting in people talking about a, a film grammar mm. and I'm very ambivalent about that. Like maybe a film has a grammar for the length of the film, but I'm not sure that there's a general grammar because you have so many different styles and meaning works within just that film like you look at an experimental film that has no narrative no it has none of the things that you have in a normal narrative film and it's say this you're watching this thing for five minutes and for the first two and a half minutes i'm watching literally bleeps and blotches on a screen like you know this is just nonsense and then you keep watching and you keep watching and by the third and fourth and fifth minutes meaning appears out of this thing that has you know no identifiable narrative or audio or or anything and then you suddenly have this epiphany like holy shit that is that's a really amazing thing. Like there is meaning inherent in not in anything, but if there's meaning inherent in that, then what does that mean about the way people talk about, yeah, your film grammar? It's like, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing it not over the course of tying all films together, but maybe only tying each single film together for the length of that film and no more. Yeah, well, I think we touched across some things like that in the, our episode two when we talk about national cinema and how America doesn't really have a national cinema. And that's part of what has reduced cinema because so much of the dominant cinema out there is designed to communicate with as many people as possible, as easily yeah. as possible. Yeah. It's not specific. Mm. It's not individual and mm. so we end up going for these films that are broad spectrum You're right. and people lose it's it's like losing aboriginal languages it's like you end up losing all these things and you come someone stumbles across something like that again and goes like oh this feels like something new and it's like mm. no no it's you just you've just forgotten it's just it. been lost yes yes that's mm. right yeah it's really yeah it is interesting time to draw to a close you guys look pretty knackered <laughs> it's uh yeah it's a life with a life with a four-year-old yeah. with, with no off switch. I, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to making stuff with him. He's, um, we've denied him so much, um, oh, no. so much TV in his early life that now he's totally obsessed. We did some amazing <laughs> bushwalks and stuff recently. Uh, you know, riding, like, riding, just uh, just biking. just incredible, incredible stuff. Yeah. Like really amazing outdoor stuff, and lot with lots of our friends and whatnot. And someone <laughs> did that thing, and they're like, "Oh, around the dinner table." Yeah, like, what's what, your favorite? What was your favorite thing today? Yeah. And everyone was like, "Oh, it was this. And it was riding that trail, and it was seeing this amazing thing." And then someone goes, "And and what was yours?" This is to our boy, and um, and he's like. Watching, oh, whatever. He just went, yeah, watching. Because <laughs> you in the in the time, because we did a shuttle, um, a group of them up on the hill so they could ride mm. back down. So, think, so, you know, we were sitting in the car and we were like, you know, I said, okay, just you can watch something while we wait for them to come back down. So that was it. That so, was the so extent. sitting in the just car. Just like 10 minutes of just watching something. <laughs> that was the highlight of his day. So I was like. We were like, what? It does. It sounds very familiar. <laughs> it sounds a lot like me when I was a kid, except I didn't have something to watch in the car. Yeah. Uh, we, my mum would 
record the audio of films onto cassette and I would listen to the cassette oh of the God. film oh on long trip. That I loved doing that. That's how obsessed oh I was God. with films. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing, yeah. So, but it gets better. Like, you just have to hold out 30 years or so and then he'll like nature. <laughs> I know, that's it, isn't it? We're like, do, like, I mean, we looked at each other and we're like, oh, my God, what more can you do? Like, yeah. oh, my God. And we're like, what have my we dad- done? My dad was the one of the people who got me into weird twisted cinema by not noticing the ratings on films. He would still be like, "Oh, why are you watching all this like crap with horror stuff and everything?" And then he he read my honors thesis, which I wrote on cannibalism, and he read it. He was like, "Okay, I understand now." And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> so your honors thesis was on cannibalism. I was originally going to do a comparative piece between Italian and American cannibal cinema in the 70s because they both have an explosion of cannibal cinema in that time. And then I was like, it's only an honours thesis. I only had 12,000 words. So I just did it on uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in relation to hippie horror and uh, youth kind of disempowerment and disassociation and anthropological, philosophical, sociological, all sorts of different things. It was fun. That is cool. <laughs> that sounds interesting. My, my first film school film was was about those the German guy who advertised someone to eat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a running theme. So my cannibal film that I'm bringing up this week in relation to the topic... <laughs> I wasn't always into that. It was an end of the uni thing that I was just suddenly like, oh, this is a really interesting topic. And then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, I'm the, the guy who knows the cannibal guy. Cannibalism guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you need to talk. To, you're researching that. You need oh, to yeah. talk to the cannibal guy. <laughs> <laughs> I just did um, with Projection Booth podcast, I did Motel Hell, which is one of my favorite cannibal films. That's a not scary, fun one that you oh, should watch, okay. Christine. Good one. Okay. okay, so I have never seen that. Like, that's from the early 80s, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I, have, I have never seen that film. And on a school camp, there was a girl who this, and this is in my my small country town. One of the teachers asked foolishly, said, "Oh, you know, has anybody seen any good movies lately?" And she goes, "Yeah, I saw Motel Hell," and she gave a blow by blow account all the way, and it stuck in my mind oh, wow. in particular the with the with the lighting. Oh. The, the sign blows up until, but until you had said that i had completely forgotten that um forgotten that moment now now i have another film that i have to go and watch finish up um yeah thanks it was really lovely chatting to you thanks for having yeah us definitely thanks. christine was so nervous she's like oh she's very reticent to talk i was like you'll be fine just <laughs> just talk about stuff like we do I had to give you a chance to come. You didn't get to the Q&As. You had to come out and do a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And now for the addendum. So we just wanted to add an addendum. So just in talking about location, our choice of location was aesthetic, political, and philosophical. So ordinarily in Australian film, if you travel inland for eight hours, you end up somewhere flat, red, and dusty. And that apparently is the quintessential Australian environment. That is the the real Australia. So we wanted to challenge that idea by shooting in an inland location that was lush, green, and wet. We hope that if we could subvert the audience's expectations, it would cause them to question how well they really know the place they come from. It would also 
um, broaden their conception of the place that they came from or that they come from. Um, and, and we hope that it would help to break what have become, to my mind anyway, comfortable and antiquated notions that we have about our environment. And I think that these these historical ways of thinking about place, about environment, hinder our ability to relate meaningfully um, to it. Uh, and I think that's quite important um, in the you know in the modern era is to is to try to reframe what the place we come from is and, and how we relate to it. And that extends to the people who inhabit these places in the popular imagination. And I think that the people um, who are most knowledgeable about these places in the popular imagination are pretty much the opposite to the characters that we, um, the people we cast um, for those characters in, in the marshes. It's um, quite opposite to that. I think Christine was... I need to say something about something more about location from a sort of production point of view. Yeah, so the location played such a big part of the film, so we had to shoot in the Macquarie Marshes. And so for people that don't know, it's an internationally significant wetland. Yeah, it's Ramsar listed. So Ramsar um, is um, was um, put together by countries in the northern and the southern hemisphere to protect um, the habitats of migratory birds. So in the Macquarie Marshes, you have a bunch of birds from like Russia flying down and um, flying down, you know, just like casually flying down um, and breeding, um, you know, and in the good seasons, they'll fatten up and breed and then, you know, they fly back. Um, but what we said, what was happening was that um, people in either the northern or the summer, southern hemisphere would be expecting to see these um, migratory birds and they were just disappearing from areas and they couldn't understand it because their home, that home environment they have either in the north or the south was being well looked after. So they were like, well, why are they dying? And then they were finding that, well, their other home, their home either in the north or the south was not being looked after. You know, they were... Um, being you know filled in or cleared or you know developed uh, and so the birds would would were disappearing so that is why they have this this agreement for um, you know all of the birds habitat in the north and the south to be protected so these these areas are pretty important um, mm -hmm. and and they're pretty cool you know you see some awesome awesome birds there yeah um, yeah, so logistically it made sense to shoot along the way to the marshes. So we shot a few days in Orange and so the whole crew and cast travelled by road from Sydney to Orange to the, mar to the marshes. So it was a, a fun little journey for all, like a big road trip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the marshes wasn't the easiest place to shoot in. It was It was hot. Yeah. By the end of it, so it was really yeah. cold at the beginning, though. So it's it's crazy, like everybody was rugged up at the very beginning, and and going through Orange when we shot there, it was mm, freezing. freezing. Yeah. And, and when we first got out to the marshes, it was really cold. Mm. And then um, after a week, nobody was coming to set with jumpers or jackets or beanies. It was all sunscreen mm. and um, and hats and 
And it didn't make... And it just got hotter and hotter and And hotter. It didn't make... Because we all had to wear waders because there was water. We had to deal with a lot of water and reeds and snakes. So we were sweltering in these hot waders. And by the time we finished shooting, everyone's like, oh, we've got to get rid of the waders. People were very happy not to be going to work in waders anymore, but um, they did Um, save our bacon. Yeah. Um, yeah, you kind of felt safe actually in them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but despite all the challenges, um, yeah, we feel it was worth it and it was a great adventure to mm. shoot there. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Thanks, Christina Roger. It was fabulous talking to you and I hope we'll have you on again soon to talk about your next exciting project. And all you goblins and ghouls out there, I hope you're enjoying your spooky Halloween. Rock your October. Thanks for listening. Ciao.